Welcome to this podcast series on the Communication European Union Environmental Law. I'm on your Royal Co-Director of the Centre for Law and the Environment at University College Cork. The Centre is a focal point for our research, teaching and advocacy work in the field of environmental law. This podcast series is part of an outreach project funded by the Department of Foreign Affairs Communicating Europe Initiative 2020. The aim of the podcast series is to explore aspects of EU environmental law in a manner that appeals to a wide audience. For this podcast, I'm joined by Attracta Ibrin. Attracta is Environmental Law Officer at the Irish Environmental Network. The IEN is a network of environmental NGOs. Attracta also serves as Vice President of the Board of the European Environmental Bureau, the EEB, and she is contributing to this podcast in a personal capacity. Attracta Ibrin, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much, Anya. I'm absolutely delighted. Uh, this is a really important initiative in my view, and compliments to the department and UCC and, and indeed yourself for the really invaluable work that you do in creating greater awareness and understanding of environmental law and indeed just the networking and the interchange of perspectives that these types of events that you facilitate provide for. And I think it's really important in the context of COVID that we continue this devout reach and engagement. So thank you. Well, it's our pleasure. We're absolutely delighted to have you with us, Attracta. So to start off, can you tell me about your work as environmental law officer with the IEN? Well, I suppose in a nutshell, my role is about protecting the environment through the use of environmental law. And it has both, I suppose, in that regard, a capacity development aspect to it and also a compliance aspect of it. And it's basically, it's, it's all aspects of environmental law. So it's both national, European and international law. And I work with a very wide range of actors. Um, for example, obviously critical to my role is my work with the NGOs. For example, at the moment, I'm working with a number of our member organizations and indeed other ENGOs on just trying to get to grips with the Maritime Spatial Planning Directive so that we sort of exchange our perspectives in terms of ecological understanding and awareness that our groups bring to the table and then what I can bring to the table in terms of an understanding of what the directive requires. But I also engage with a whole range of other actors, for example, um, various different departments, um, state agencies, you know, as environmental decision makers, key actors within the legal profession, a wide range of European NGOs, but also UN institutions, UNECE institutions, and of course the European Union institutions, so both the, the Council, the Parliament, and indeed members of the Commission as well. It's clear, I suppose, from what you're saying there, attractive that like ourselves here in the Centre of Law and the Environment, that networking dimension is so important. Uh, and again, that sharing of views that you mentioned and sharing of perspectives. Moving, moving things along, um, in your view, what, what have been the most significant impacts of EU law on the development of environmental law in Ireland? Well, um, transformational, I think, is, is probably the only word. Um, I think, um, I mean, it, it's hard to think of any aspect of our environment where EU law hasn't had just profound impact and um, uh, everything from sort of our air quality our water quality when you get up in the morning you turn on the taps you know the, the quality of the water that comes out of that when you go for a walk and you might be walking by the sea and you want to go for a swim your bathing water everything um, it, it has had really really significant implications and um, particularly in the area of nature protection and um, but indeed like our whole consenting framework 
So many of our licensing systems, our planning permissions are all informed by European law in terms of maybe the types of assessments that we need to conduct before granting consent. So it, it has really had a, a very, very significant effect. And I think critically important in that, it, it, it's not just because we're, we're not necessarily always that good at, at transposing our European law or indeed implementing it, um, if, if I can speak frankly. But uh, I still think it's had a very profound effect. And I think the role of the Commission um, and the EU institutions and how that um, those guardian angels, so to speak, work around uh, European law is also incredibly important, both in terms of the information sharing and the expertise that the Commission facilitates, which I think is, is sometimes overlooked, but I certainly find that incredibly important and a really valuable element of what the, the Commission does. But also, obviously, there is infringement proceedings, um, which are so important to the homogeneity of market conditions across the Union. Um, and then there is the critical role, of course, of the Court of Justice. And it has been wonderful, actually, to see in recent years um, Ireland playing a really key role, or, or the Irish courts, rather, playing a key role in, in sending preliminary references to the Court of Justice. And that's driven some really important clarifications, um, on, which haven't been just obviously important to us here in Ireland, but incredibly important for the interpretation of EU law uh, right across the European Union and I've been really really proud of, of some of the, the results of, the, of those cases and, and the effect that they have had. I'd have to agree and certainly as you mentioned their nature protection in particular and the impact that the Court of Justice and EU law more generally has had in that area and I suppose we see now with the impact of the pandemic how many people are reconnecting with nature which confirms again the importance of protecting nature and our environment for current and present generations uh, and I think too from what you said there the speed at which EU law evolves and the role of the courts both nationally and in Luxembourg has been so significant. So I suppose another question that we were hoping to ask of you is what in your view do you think is one of the most significant recent developments to support effective enforcement of EU environmental law? In my own view I, I would have to say it is probably Ireland's ratification of the Aarhus Convention, and you may have heard of it. <laughs> um, but um, I, uh, Ireland was unfortunately late to the table uh, in ratifying Aarhus, but for me as an ENGO, um, the way I try and describe Aarhus, you know, apart from the fact that so many of our procedural rights flow from it, um, I think just to try and, and put it in, in plain speaking, as an ENGO, it gives me my eyes. It, you know, it is my vision. It gives me access to information, you know, both through proactive dissemination and rights to request information. And information is the lifeblood of how we actually, you know, not just through our own sort of observations and scientific understanding, but, you know, just understanding broader sets of information and data sets and decisions and information around decisions. It's incredibly important. And it also gives us a voice in terms of our public participation rights. And, you know, in terms of that underpinning and that additional robustness that we get through our own ratification and being a full party to the Aarhus Convention in our own right, apart from the way basically it has flown through European directives. I mean, that, that is incredibly important. And of course, it gives us our feet. It gives us our standing, you know, and that wonderful phrase from Advocate General Sharpston, the fish can't go to court. And as ENGOs, we have that incredibly important locus standi recognized through the Aarhus Convention, where we are the voice of the environment. And on top of that, it gives us our hands. 
uh, it gives us the ability to do something, to take action. And to bring all of those together, it, it makes us an empowered um, body, basically, as ENGOs. And it's incredibly important, not just for ENGOs, but for the wider public. And I think it really has facilitated our ability through the way Ireland you know, addressed the requirements, particularly around the access to justice pillar, and addressed what was a very problematic aspect for litigation and environmental decision making, which was the issue of costs in Ireland um, and the prohibitive nature of costs, which could have an incredibly chilling effect for people and just really effectively meant that unless you were extremely rich or extremely poor and had no assets, um, it was very difficult to pursue action. And Ireland, I think, took a very innovative approach. It wasn't immediately seamless, shall we say, in transition, and it took a lot of satellite litigation, etc., to clarify it. But now I think we have a very good solution. It's not perfect, but it does facilitate, finally, sort of what is, in my view, a normal flow of litigation, challenging decisions. I know there's been some issues with that, but I think the focus has got to be on improving the quality of decision making, but we can come to that maybe later in the conversation. But I think that that has been, without question, in terms of enabling us to to address uh, issues where directives aren't complied with or the law isn't complied with, that has been profound in underpinning any sort. Well, it's, it's really wonderful from my perspective anyway, if I can say so, to, to hear that really insightful and very powerful account of the impact of the Aarhus Convention across a whole range of areas, like you mentioned, and how it supports, um, to some extent at least, although there's always scope for improvement, how it supports the vital work of, of the NGO. So it, it, it's really important, I think, to, to hear that and to hear the NGO perspective. And I suppose then with um, looking ahead, looking to the future and with a view to, to putting our conversation together, what would you see as being the most significant challenges in the area of implementation of EU environmental law? I, I think that question builds potentially on what you were saying in the answer to the other question about the significant developments. Yeah, um, I suppose from my perspective, what I've described has been a very, very positive journey uh, in terms of you know the effect of EU law, that absolute wonderful crescendo with the ratification of the Aarhus Convention and the the enablement basically um, that um, the environment that that has facilitated. Um, and I think unfortunately what we have seen consequent on on that is instead of continuing that sort of very positive response, we've actually seen quite a negative reaction. Um, and if I can sort of just characterize that maybe in, in the context of what we saw just at the end of last year, where the government in response to in the context of the Apple case decision was the government brought forward a proposal to radically change, and I mean radically change, the approach to access to justice in Ireland and the rules for judicial review in environmental cases. So everything that had been put in place basically was put in jeopardy, in, in my view, in relation to the proposals in that bill from the scope of what could be challenged and who could challenge the cost rules, every single solitary dimension. Um, and that, that bill, albeit it wasn't brought forward under the last government, it is still part of the current legislative programme. And I actually see it still uh, down for Q1 in 2021. And I think that is going to be an absolute major challenge in, in relation to the direction of travel that Ireland takes. Um, I think it's incredibly problematic at this, at this point in time where 
we actually need to stimulate our economy. We need a recovery coming out of COVID. And I think this is going to actually be a very contrary um, effect in that recovery, because I think invariably it is going to drive a whole range of litigation around the legality of what is proposed. And that's going to cast a whole range of of, of issues into uncertainty and, and that's not good for business it's not good for the environment it's not good for NGOs it's not good for the public nobody knows where we stand um, and instead you know if, if we want to actually stop litigation what we should do is really focus on the quality of the decisions that we're making and that's the most effective way to do it and then it's a win-win for everybody particularly for business you know and I know from having worked decades in the business sector how important certainty is for business and i think then the, the other aspect of it is it, it's not just isolated to that but we're actually seeing in multiple pieces of legislation coming before the iraq this a very definite reaction to strategic litigation for example um in climate case ireland obviously a hugely significant judgment uh, from the supreme court uh, earlier this summer um, and we see now new climate uh, litigation coming before the Iraq. This we see in the way that that bill has been crafted. What I can only, in my view, characterise as a systematic effort to make it effectively unjusticiable uh, in terms of you know unclear accountability, very unspecific targets, names and objectives, the language that's used, the phraseology, every aspect of that bill. Um, um, I think it, it is, is problematic from that point of view. And we saw it also in the forestry legislation, which was enacted this year, a complete undermining of what had been sort of a relatively generous appeal system. But now we have the establishment of a quite extraordinary approach, the imposition of fees, um, not just for making observations um, and appeals, but also just for fundamental quests for information around an application to be able to participate in a decision. Just really quite, ex and, and information on the decision itself um, just being implemented in a very confusing and a very, very difficult way for the public to get to grips with. Uh, and very significant issues where, despite the fact that we have all had, I think, just a really transformational shift uh, in relation to our, our use of electronic and technology and methods of, of interface, we still have really antiquated proposals coming forward in legislation. Even in the Marine Bill, uh, newspaper notices, single physical copies of documents for access for the public you know, to participate on. Um, so the direction of travel needs, needs a significant nudge in the right direction, but uh, it is a cause of very serious concern. Attracting Britain, thank you for joining us today and for sharing those really fascinating insights into your work in the NGO sector. I think you've communicated to us very clearly um, how important the vigilance role of the NGOs is, particularly in protecting the right of access to justice, for example, but you've also demonstrated, I think, very clearly how European Union environmental law has had that transformational impact, but there's always a danger of rollback, but in particular, um, pressures come to bear. So we're delighted to have had this opportunity to speak with you and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much.